Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, it's been a minute. I'm so happy to be back with uh, you, and the reason we're a little bit delayed this episode is because a a hurricane came through and battered Houston, Texas. Um, Sarah, what is that like? I know that there's probably a lot of PTSD about weather-related events in Houston. Well, to be fair, we thought it was going to batter Houston, and praise God, it did not batter Houston, although it really hit Louisiana. Yeah, um, yeah it's weird. We we just, we've gone from being a people who wait to the last minute to shut things down to being a people who shut things down like three days early. Um, that's, that's really what the PTSD looks like here. So, yeah. Um, Pray for my cousin Clara. I like never do this on the podcast, but Clara, they still don't have power and they're in rural Louisiana and they've got four little kids. So I just, you know, there are people that are really struggling right now. Um, You know, that's the weird thing about hurricanes is you, you know, there's some like, like when a tornado comes and you're so terrified. I mean, I grew up with tornadoes and, and you think like, oh, maybe it won't hit us and maybe it'll just go away. And sometimes that happens with a hurricane, like is going to hit somebody, you know what I mean? So it's like this weird feeling of being so relieved and also feeling a little guilty that like someone else is going to have to endure it. Sounds a little like, uh, like Christianity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Somebody, <laughs> Jesus is a hurricane. Someone is gonna have to endure it. I hope. It's How not is me. that not in a Bob Dylan song? <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh gosh, RJ, you're usually in right in the path now. You've you've moved out yeah, of right? one path into another path of major weather events. Um, That's exactly what? right. We seem to just enjoy hurricane uh, locales. I mean, we still do own our home in Houston because, uh, you know, around the time we moved. Uh, oil hit, you know, less than $0 a barrel. And we're like, maybe it's not time to sell right now. Maybe we're, so we have, um, friends of my really good friends of my youngest brother just happened to move from Connecticut to, uh, Houston with their two girls. So they're renting out our house. But then I had all sorts of like, oh my gosh, massive. Yeah. We were worried because we still have a house there and we're not there. And like, are our windows going to blow in? How are our renters going to do? And and I, but they were very smart. I, I texted them. I said, Hey, I know the hurricane is coming. Let me know what I can do to be helpful. He's like, Oh, we left for Austin last night. I was like, well smart. played. Well, yeah. well played. So Just leave. I'm so thankful that it, uh, it was not a big deal because Harvey, man, it's, it's, uh, I have PTSD from afar. You know, that's what, yeah. what 53 inches or 58 inches of rain will do to you. That was a, yeah. that was a crazy time. Mm, so yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of so, crazy times you just dropped off your eldest son at uh, an institution of higher learning we did Dang. we did um which was intense you know on the way back my wife turned to me and she said i kind of feel like i'm finally an adult you know like oh, i like i said yeah. like i sent a kid to college like i yeah i did it and he's um he's such a great kid and I'm happy for him and he seems pretty happy 
but it's certainly not what any of us experienced freshman year. You know, all of his classes are online. It's hot as Hades in Austin. It was like 105 degrees yesterday. So he's kind of, I don't want to say stuck in his little dorm room, but kind of stuck in his little dorm room and only half the kids are back. And, you know, all the fun stuff that he would have done in a normal freshman year, the big opening celebrations are not happening. And um, he can't make out with random girls. Well, hopefully, I don't know. He did. (laughs) He did. We... One night, he he's so sweet. We we start getting these bing, bing, bing on our phone. It's like 4 a.m. And it's him texting us because he had just been out um, and, and walked around campus with some people. He's like, oh, I met this girl. She's really cute. She likes me. She's from Miami, which is right down the street. So oh, yeah. he seems very, he actually does seem very happy. But Welcome uh, to Miami. Yeah, but it's strange, man. <laughs> it's strange, strange days. And our house just, he's got such a big personality and our house feels a little emptier. He's also big. Like it's almost like the worst analogy ever. But when our Bernie's mountain dog died, the house felt empty. And I imagine that's what it's like to send a giant kid to college. It is exactly like that. Was that insensitive? Marshall, gosh, last night we were snuggling in bed as he was falling asleep. And you know, at his school he calls all his teachers Miss, you know, so it's Miss Devin, Miss Miriam. And he said to us, he said, You could call me Miss Marshall because I miss everyone who's left. You know, oh I miss, no, I know I was like, oh, oh gosh, <laughs> so, he's three years old. I mean, Jackson's like a god in his eyes. Oh, a hundred percent. And now well, yeah. I tell you what, we've had our boys in school for a week. I don't miss them at all. I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, no, I I'm so, it, it's amazing how much guilt is this sort of low simmering guilt that you feel about them watching screens or not getting enough yeah. time or yeah. just not learning their brains. And, and to know that at least something approximating that is happening mm-hmm. elsewhere that you're not in charge mm-hmm. of. I mean, there's almost there's almost a new, maybe for it's just neurotic types like me, but there's almost like a new guilt that sets in, not only about the people who aren't in the position to, that where, their, where their kids can't go back to school, but it's just more just like, is there something I'm forgetting? It's it's like it's like you're on the way to the airport and you th- you, you think you've forgotten your passport or something like that because it, it's become ingrained that like my kids are, are my nonstop responsibility in yeah. my eyeline, and uh, this feels like maybe maybe it took this to just be this, this this pandemic for for me to be grateful for something as basic as just school attendance. I totally, mean, that's, 100%. that was very much taken for granted in a in a pre-COVID world, wouldn't you say? Yes. I just have so much freedom about what I'm sending in for them to eat for lunch because I got to tell you, I have spent the first, (laughs) yes, it's Lunchables. I spent the first decade of motherhood being like, they'll judge me if I send in Lunchables. I can't send in lunch. I got to make stuff. And I was like, who wants to order 20 Lunchables when school started? Because those last for like eight months. I don't know what they put in them, but it's not good. And my kids are eating them. And I have no, it's a, that has been like Lunchable guilt is gone post pandemic. No more Lunchable guilt. pandemic, but yeah, no more Lunchable guilt. Freedom in Christ. <laughs> Freedom in Christ. Freedom prize. <laughs> well, let's, we're going to jump in now to our articles. And one of the things, we're, let's begin by talking about college. Colleges because, you know, mm. I work with college students here in Charlottesville. Sarah works with college students at Rice in Houston. And RJ just sent a child to college. And mm. um, and then this college reopenings um, is very much a national news story right now, especially as it relates to students, you know, opening and then closing because students cannot seem to not socialize. 
touch each other. Touch each other. Let's just put put it out there. <laughs> there was a fascinating piece that was sent to me by Ginger Mayfield, who works with college students as well, or getting kids into college. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in it was in the the this website Inside Higher Education, and this is called Blame Game by Greta Anderson. She says, asking students, especially those who are 17 or 18 years old, to, quote, be adults, neglects decades of research on how young people evaluate risks and rewards. Kenneth Elmore, associate provost at Boston University, called such messages, quote, incredibly condescending and not motivating for students to follow the rules. Lawrence Steinberg, a professor of psychology at Temple University and a leading expert on adolescent behavior, said that young adults tend to think more of, quote, immediate rewards rather than long-term consequences, and they have a unique need to socialize with others. Even if college-age people understand the risks and consequences for breaking the COVID-19 rules, they also tend to believe they won't get caught, Steinberg says. Strong punitive approaches to bad behavior are, in his mind, quote, futile and, quote, not likely to work. When you have a temptation that is very immediately enticing, especially at this age, you often behave in a way that sets aside what you know you should be doing, Steinberg said. Julia Marcus, the Harvard epidemiologist, said punitive public health efforts, quote, don't deter high-risk behavior. They tend to drive that behavior behind closed doors. And then back to uh, Nathan uh, Kenneth Elmore at Boston University. He said, I've, quote, got my fingers crossed that Boston University's positive campaign, not punitive, will be effective in preventing such situations. She said, I may be naive, but I've been at it for a long time. I know what motivates young people, and they don't need a bunch of old people wagging their fingers at them. They don't tend to listen to that. Now, um, this is a, a very awkward situation. I think uh, I'm, I'm sitting here in Virginia and they've got an incredibly sophisticated psychology department that understands exactly what motivates people and what doesn't motivate them. And yet they seem to be ignoring all of that research and just, just shouting, stop at people. Just don't do it. And then when in doubt um, accusation and law. When in doubt <laughs> accusation. And, and you know, you read things from like Temple and Purdue that are saying like, if you break this, you do not have a place here. Like you were, yeah. you were sayonara. And um, I then, so this is the, what I was, I was trying to connect with some uh, sophomore students who've just gotten back and I was, I was texting them and saying, guys, I'd love to, love to hear how the summer was and what's been going on. And so I get the first email, a text back from a guy who says, actually, well, I'm camping right now because I got COVID and um, I had to quarantine for two weeks, but I'd love to see you when I get back. Then the second text comes in and the guy says, actually, Dave, I'm so glad to hear from you, but I'm quarantined because me and my roommates all got the Rona. <laughs> and then, then, I, then and I thought, this is, come on, we're supposed to be doing better than this. It's a week in, less than a week. And so the third guy texts and he says, uh, actually, Dave, um, the majority of my apartment building just tested positive for Corona. So oh we're, uh, we're quarantined for the next two weeks. And I just thought to myself, guys, that did not take long. Any time at all. No. Any time at all. And it's, so it's, it's a, it's a real thing. It's not just a media narrative. All these kids have Corona and they're right down the street. And, um, the punitive Char- measures, the people of Charlottesville must basically be did not do anything. So the law, wow. what, what do you guys think? I mean, I would have followed none of these rules in college. Mm-hmm. None of them. Yeah. I'm not sure I would follow them now. I keep thinking of like a seminary retreat. I think I've talked about before where it was a silent retreat for three days. And I immediately started wearing the craziest clothes I had and passing notes to people to get them to talk. 
And by like the second night, somebody like was like, there's a bottle of bourbon at the river, pass it along. Um, and it was like over. I mean, and we were adults, like the person, the person who like had the bottle of bourbon was like my dad's age, you know, like it was like, I just, I think this is a lot to expect of people. And I'm deeply empathetic because these students, I mean, I've spent time with a bunch of them this summer, you know, on the zoom and they're really suffering. They really miss each other. They really, you know, they've been cooped up with their parents and their parents have a lot of rules about what they, rules that they, you know, they didn't, I mean, it's, it's weird to have to enforce rules on your kid when they're 20, right? And they're home, but there was a lot of that dynamic happening. And then they come into these university settings and, um, I don't know. I just, I really feel for them. I mean, I don't, I don't really know what the answer is. One of my favorite things in this article is the sentence, uh, phone sex is in. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There are quite a few. Phone sex is never in. Okay. (laughs) I thought that went out in like the, with like the the ads in the back of village voice. Exactly. They. It feels like they're being set up for failure in a, in an. It's ast- such a mixed message. It's, it's totally so impossible. Does. It's impossible. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's what yet another example of the fact that the, the problem with people's behavior is not that they don't know what they should do. It's that mm-hmm. they. It's it's a it's a question of a, of actual capability. It's the what we talked about with Giles Fraser. It's a crisis of capacity. It's. None of these students, they know that they are risking their spot, that parents won't get refunds if they get... But it's there's other motivations that are stronger than those. Uh, absolutely. And it's more than just like they want to party. I mean, like, I think that's like the overwhelming narrative. Oh, well, they want to party. They miss each other. Like, these people are in deep relationship with one another. Well, you know? So that remind. Yeah. I mean, a few things. It reminds me of um, my son turned 18 in late May, you know, at which point school had been shut down for a month or two. And and we, it was his 18th birthday. It was like, we got to do something. So we did a family thing, but then we're like, okay, why don't you just have a couple of your really close friends over? You can be in the backyard. You can social distance. We'll make some food. Just have a little celebration of your 18th birthday. Well, two, three hours later, there's like 15 boys in the backyard wrestling with each other, you know, yeah. and like it didn't yeah. take long. And and then they're not drink they're not drinking or anything. Like they're there's right. nothing bad going on, but they just couldn't not touch each other. They couldn't yeah. not be around each other. And it was kind of cute and kind of terrifying. And none of them came down with COVID. But it was um it was actually really beautiful in, in a certain kind of way. But they yeah, it it, it wasn't about rule breaking. It was just about they missed each other and they wanted to be around each other. And um, the other thing I want to name as I hear about everything that's going on on college campuses is just how much all of this is motivated by money, how much of this is financially mm. motivated. You yes. know, Dave, and Dave, you named it, right? Like, we can't tell these kids not to come back to Charlottesville when they've all signed leases, you know, for these apartments. And like, it's like Charlottesville doesn't want them to come back, but I guarantee the landlords want them to come back and the restaurant owners yeah. want them to come back and the, the tax base wants them to come back. And then I also wonder with all these really heavy-handed proclamations by school administrations, how much of it is real and how much of it is just to guard themselves against being sued <laughs> later on, mm. you know, where they're like, they're like, you know, hey, you know, someone's going to get corona and they're going to die or they're going to have lasting health effects. So we don't know. But at least we can go back and say, look, here's what we said. Here's what we told. Here's the measures that we took to kind of guard ourselves financially. And maybe that's really cynical. 
but I just kind of think it's true too, right? Like these, these colleges are businesses and they're trying to guard the bottom line. And, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an impossibly weird time. I, I just feel bad for these kids and I feel bad for the administrators too. Like what are these? I mean, I guess a lot of places just have shut down, but that's, that's no funny. Either. Well, here they're inviting com- community members to post uh, on, uh, like, when they see students violating. Oh my gosh! Protocols. Community policing. Great. And I thought to myself, we're, we're, I mean, we're already. That'll go well. You, you really want us to police the kids? I mean, that's so sad. And that's a, um, that's a role I'm not willing to, especially take as a, as a, as the Christian minister. I don't want to be the, yeah. the, 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 the heavy. But um, Sarah, it reminded me something that you've written that it's going to go up on the site. Uh, right after this podcast, actually, um, I don't want to blow the title. Uh, I want to let you say it. So, can you can you give us a little <laughs> example? <laughs> Sweet. Um, so, we had this picture that went up um, <clears throat> with our like, you know, my husband's church with his like weekly newsletter, and I immediately saw when it got posted on social media that this woman whose name I did not recognize. I think the sentence started, uh, what do you people think you're doing? And then she ranted at us and then she tagged my husband and then she tagged our Bishop. Cause like, he's our dad. I don't know. And, um, the photograph was, so we were talking about Laura hurricane relief and the, you know, ways we were going to be helping. But the photograph was from when we did Harvey cause Harvey impacted our community obviously so much. And, Anyway, she was livid because it was of a bunch of people in a room packing, you know, food. And there was no, for her, there was no nuance that this might be an old photograph. There was no, um, you know, reaching out to send an email. It was immediately shaming the church, which she does not. They weren't wearing masks in the photo. They weren't wearing masks, obviously, because this was Harvey. This is pre-pandemic. And she tagged my husband and she, it was just awful. And I got really angry um, and wanted to find her address and key her car. And um, then I realized just how much my rage really kind of met her rage. And I, I, this phrase, I was literally driving around thinking about this. This phrase came into my head, which is that I need to defund my inner police. Um, and it's a phrase I've been thinking about a lot because I think we're all, I mean, goodness, Dave, I mean, talking about defunding your inner police, that you would be responsible for reporting students on campus who aren't following protocol, like that we all have this sort of inner legalism right now that is getting a tremendous amount of funding (laughs) from from our deep-seated neuroses and need to be self-righteous. And, um, you know, I just want to, I want to decrease so Christ would increase. I mean, I just know it's not good for me. Mm. Um, so yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm working on a piece about that. Um, but defund your I, inner police. I mean, that is yeah. such a, I think, uh, we, we can, we can print that uh, on a, on bumper stickers and not, not look back, <laughs> uh, because that's what is really going on. Uh, and that's, what's so funny is that sometimes the people who are the most, um, intensely pernicious and overbearing about this uh, about rule following right now are the very ones who are also crying to to do actually defund the police in other ways and you're like I guess is, is, is that do you just want to become 
the police uh, to everyone you meet, and that's not. Um, it's such a. It's very complicated, and I do know that in using that phrase, that that I sort of enter into the complications. But I do. I think on either side of politics, there, especially the most extremes, there is this sense of. Um, you know, that that we get to say that you're wrong and that we're right and there's zero, like, introspection happening. Um, and that's, uh, it's so deeply dangerous. Yeah. So, anyway, and I and I say that as someone who can easily step into that fray. That comes very naturally to me. That is my predilection. But I, um, I, I worry, you know, I, I really worry. And it was interesting to have someone who was like further left than I am come at me or come at my church or come at my husband. And then my response was immediately uh, violent, frankly, mm. you know, and it, and, and we're seeing in our streets right now that, right. We're seeing that kind of violence play itself out. Um, I mean, people are literally like showing up to fight each other right now. Yeah. And, um, and it's, so it's terrifying, but it's also very clarifying to recognize that impulse in myself. Mm. Sarah, you know what's interesting about that is, is uh, I agree with you about defunding the inner police, but sometimes the inner police are directed outwards and sometimes they're directed inwards, totally. right? Like if, if I had written the newsletter that Josh had written and gotten the email from the angry woman, I would have felt been like, how could I have been so stupid to, po to post a picture that yeah. didn't, you do, do you know what I mean? And not that Josh was stupid, yeah, that's yeah, not yeah, what I'm yeah. saying at all. Yeah, but yeah, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. it's such an anxiety ridden time. I think um, it's a combination, yes. right? We look outside yeah. and we say, I can't believe those people are doing that. But then there's also a real sense of internal struggle. Like, am I doing the right things? Am I communicating the right things? How am I handling this? How am I, Yeah. am I being a good father, a good husband, a good employee, a good whatever it is, you know? Um, that the, the, the volume on the, on the internal police, you know, um, internally directed is also turned up, not just yeah. externally, but internally as well. Yeah. Well, and I have to say, I totally agree. My fury as his wife, and it wasn't an email, it was a Facebook comment. So it was like everyone could see I hate it. that. Yes. Oh, yeah, it yeah, yeah. Pretty, totally. It was pretty awful. And he didn't, you know, somebody on his staff who does communications did the photograph. And so yes. there was a def defensiveness around his staff. I mean, it was just really hard. Yeah. And all I could think of... It's his wife is that article that I read a few weeks ago. It was in a Baptist publication, but it totally applies about how much suicide ideation totally. is up among clergy. I thought clergy. about the same thing. Yeah. I was like, lady, <laughs> what are you doing? This is hard enough. He already looks tired, you know? So, um, but I, I'm not going to key anybody's car because I uh, have you know, understood that I'm a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. I'm not allowed to do that anymore. Mm. <laughs> No, well, when, um, when, when, when everyone but, gets deputized, uh, everyone also suffers because a lot of the internal, yes. a lot of people's internal condemnation also, uh, it, it, it has a funnel outward, I think, as, as well as inward. And as you said, it's... We're, we're all Barney Fife, but like a really angry Barney Fife, and it's, you know what and I mean, it, when we get deputized. <laughs> No, and it, and it definitely cuts both ways. I mean, it's, again, it's, it's, it depends on which form of the law you're trying to enforce. But yeah. right now, there's like a, a general license has been given to deputize all of these people on social media where there's no actual physical you know, interaction with someone. So you're removed from them. And, and the, so the cost is very low and the reward of feeling good and that you've done something moral is very high. Um, and it's... Um, 
you know, no wonder the social fabric is fraying in the ways that we're talking about with all of that uh, mental health stuff. The demand and the need to do everything perfectly right now, right? To all, whether you're on a huge. college campus, to to socialize perfectly, to wear your mask perfectly, to wash your hands perfectly, to, you know, if you're leading a church, to make sure that you're disinfecting personally, uh, perfectly, that you have the perfect regathering plan. You know, it, it just, um, the anxiety one, one is false so move. high. The, one false move. Yeah, it's, yes. it's intense. It's really, it is intense. Well, let's, uh, we're going to, uh, let's sh- shift a little bit here. We're going to read a, something that Tim Kreider wrote, which is a little, has, has some, something to say about this. Uh, on Medium, Tim Kreider, the columnist who we enjoy so much, he wrote a piece called I Am a Meme Now. And he's referring to one of his more famous uh, lines uh, that we've quoted before. If, if, you want, if we want the rewards of being loved, we have to submit to the mortifying ordeal of being known. It's a great little mm-hmm. line, and people have memed it in a, in a funny way. And t- this is, the article is Tim sort of coming to terms with what that means. And uh, he sort of says, we're all memes right now. And uh, w- but he he goes to something that's much more universal for those who don't have uh, you know their little pithy sayings embroidered on uh, either digitally or in uh, actual um, needlepoint. Um, he says the things people love about you aren't necessarily the things you want to be loved for. Other people decide they like you for reasons completely outside your control, of which you're often not even conscious. It's certainly not because of the big act you put on, all the charm and anecdotes you've calculated for effect. And if your act does fool someone, it only makes you feel like a successful fraud and harbors some secret... Dave, I feel personally attacked right now, but keep reading. (laughs) It only makes you feel like a successful fraud and harbors some secret contempt for them, the contempt of a con artist for his mark. Plus, now you're condemned to keep up that act forever, lest she realize... Oh my God, this is too much. Okay, keep going. You don't even get to know what your children will remember you for. It probably won't be what you thought were the important moments. I still remember my dad snoozing next to me in the theater at a long, slow science fiction movie I was keen to see when I was 12. It still touches me to imagine how little interest he must have had in the film. He probably would not have wanted to be immortalized in his sleep, but there he is, snoring gamely beside me. He continues, But as the Velveteen Rabbit teaches... We don't become fully real except in other people's eyes and in their affections. At some point, you have to accept that other people's perception of you are as valid as, and probably a lot more objective than, your own. This may mean letting go of a false or outdated self-image, including some cherished illusions of unique unlovability. For years, I felt guilty and fraudulent every time my girlfriend called me a good boyfriend, until eventually, I realized she'd actually made me one. This is, I think, I, what struck me is a couple of things. First of all, if you're in the business of uh, writing or speaking, or if you're especially preaching, we, we've talked about this before, but the things that people connect with about your sermon or about, uh, it's usually, it, it's sometimes just their own biochemical you know, well-being that day or what they had for lunch, but sometimes it's just the Holy Spirit. And it's seldom what you really want, that what you think is most important for them to get out of your, your talk what you really want to communicate to them. They come up to you and they say something and you're like, I didn't actually say that. Or they'll say, I'll never forget the time that you told such and such. And I think, I have no recollection of that. I always think, don't listen to me whenever people say that. <laughs> but that's usually, yeah, exact, but in fact, it's usually good news because uh, what yeah. they, they heard something 
if God was involved, they heard something that they needed yeah. to hear. Um, and yet it's frightening to us that we can't really control our image because we spend all day, every day trying to do that. And yet we know in our hearts that the way we associate other people and what we think of them has very little to do with their own uh, program for, um, you know, impression making. Uh, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, it makes me think of, um, how I've always tried to think of myself as somebody who, like wants to really have it, like have it together, like show up in professional settings, look professional, have the work, you know, all this stuff and how, um, you know, part of it was just like sheer apathy about school as a kid. But, you know, I think about in seminary when I had, uh, you know, all these major life transitions happening as a young mom, I was still really working very hard to try to project that. But like, w- the reality was I had no time to do the reading. I was barely making it to class. You know, it was really hard. And w- the feedback that I got from my classmates was always, and I realized this very quickly, and I've said this before on here, but I realized I was the person they came to when they didn't want to do stuff because that was apparently what I was projecting. <laughs> like when they wanted someone to say, it's okay, you don't have to do that. Don't go to that. I wouldn't go to that. Don't do that. I wouldn't do that. I was the person they came to. And that has, that has that's continued actually. Like even now people, colleagues will be like, I don't feel like doing this. I'm like, don't do it. Um, and it, it's a weird thing for me in my life. I feel like God has done where, um, and I know this is like murky territory, especially for like the type a personalities, but I feel like there's a lot of grace there. Like I kind of like love that. Like that's how, like I, I resented it for a little while. Cause I was like, I work so hard to look like I have my shit together. And at some point I was like, I obviously don't have my shit together and obviously don't show up for stuff that I don't want to. And people seem to find some like mercy for themselves in that. And so um, you know, I had a student this summer who got this like baller internship and she didn't show up for a lot of our stuff for like a whole month, which was fine. And she sent me an email and she's like, I'm really, you know, I feel so bad. I promise I'm going to be there this fall. I mean, Dave, you get these emails, right? I promise I'm going to be there this fall. And I was like, it's all grace. Mm. Like it's all grace, you know? And so that has like, I'm not, I'm actually not, you know, going to be the person people come to for like high achievement and that's that's okay you know i don't know i think it ties into a lot of stuff we've talked about uh about I, around identity right that we're an identi- yeah. identity obsessed culture who we want to be able to define ourselves we want to be able to define someone else we want to be able to sort of carve out a niche for ourselves in the universe and say i am this thing you know whatever that thing might be and at the moment we think we have that it seems to escape us it seems to fade away right like you you only feel as good of a writer as the last piece you wrote or as good of a preacher as the last thing sermon you preached um i don't want to say i've given up on that because that's ridiculous right like i wish i could give up on that but sometimes life gets so full and so crazy and so conflicted that maybe you just care a little bit less and also the the experience of preaching sermons into a camera lens for the last five months is bizarre you know because there's no immediate reaction there's no laughing there's no head nodding there's no eye contact there's no words at the church door as you leave you know Mm -hmm. you just kind of put it out there into the 
cyberspace and you have no idea what kind of effect it's going to have on people as they're sitting in their living rooms or kitchens or whatever. Um, what I have found, interestingly, is that the sermons I'm most nervous about and fearful about seem to have gotten the quote-unquote best reactions, you know, um, when I feel like I'm talking about something heavy or dark or, you know, I gave a sermon on sadness last week, um, which got a lot of views. <laughs> People seem to really relate to, but it's a, it's, it's a very bizarre Anyway, this is all the piece to me right now. I thought I had a different reaction to the credit article. I love the parts that you read, Dave, but I also, you know, he goes on to kind of lament for the youth of today and their reliance on meme culture and, and online interactions. And I actually had a different reaction, whereas, and maybe this is just my son, but my son and his friends actually do seem to have a level of intimacy, you know, like the birthday party where they were, you know, couldn't keep their hands off each other. And these are all boys, by the way, 100 yeah. percent boys, no girls. There. Yeah. Seem to have a level of intimacy and understanding um, and also just a comfort with online culture. Like they understand it and put it in context way better than I ever could. Like there have been a few times I've had conversations with Jack about things going on with the quote unquote youth of today that concern me. And he's just like, yeah, dad, I, I totally understand what you're saying. And like, it's just not that big of a deal. Mm. It's not really yeah. like that. And I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's good to know. So maybe I'm 44 years old, which, wait, am I 44? Yes. I forgot how old I was at the grocery store this week. I told the lady I was 42 as she's looking at my ID, which, yes, I got carded. So let me just put that out there. I was wearing a mask, which helps. <laughs> um, it, was a, it was a 2020 moment. I'm, she's like, how old are you? Like, I'm 42. Wait, no, I'm 43. I'm like, wait, what year is what? What month is it? I'm actually 44. <laughs> as she's looking at my ID. Um, anyway, uh, I I don't I don't have I don't know. I, I have more faith in our kids than maybe Kreider does, and he's maybe I'll feel differently once he's been a couple years in college. But yeah. I don't know meme culture. I don't understand it, but my son does, and he's fine with it. And there's there's well, I think there, there's a lot actually. of a lot of humor and top drawer humor going on in meme culture and that, that, totally. that should culture. be applauded. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really think it's made everyone into a kind of a cartoonist and a, and a, and and yes. it's, it's, it's given access to those and the synthesis to a lot of that people. it creates the 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 way that people bring in disparate you know politics and humor and pop culture and highbrow culture and the way they all can mix together in a single. It's it's kind of fascinating. I'm totally intimidated by it, but I think it's um yeah, it's art. The, it actually is art. It is. I think totally. it's something that's kind of very it should be actually generally applauded. What it freaks me out. I mean, when, when one of the things he's saying is that who you are is not is kind of out of your hands, and yeah. that is scary yes. when you put the wrong picture in the newsletter and everyone says yes. that's the guy who, who did that is and yes. like. We, he's terrible or that's it can be the in the, in the, you can be remembered for a single thing um, yeah. in the eyes of people that don't really know you and have and no, not even curiosity they're just after the again the reward of feeling right uh, or enough but the deeper more gracious thing is that if we're really who we are is not really in our hands that means um, the people that love us 
uh, can love us not for what we project, but who we actually are, <laughs> you know, or who we, the, the cracks that get through our facade. I was struck this week, uh, you know, I've, 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 my nostalgia has been well documented on this podcast, but I was going through an old journal I found of mine, which is a very cringe-inducing thing to read what you were thinking when you were... 22. If you had a pizza while you were there. <laughs> um, I was There's pizza stains all over it. Just, <laughs> just crying. The, uh, <laughs> the, well, I was just struck by some of the narrative that I have of myself and what I was going through at that time isn't really totally true. You know, it's like mm. I had edited out certain yes. details and I'd made, uh, you know, it was it was around the time of my real, I would call it my conversion to Christianity. And you, you have a shorthand for these things that get to be very clean and partly just so you can pass it on and other people can maybe benefit from what you have to say. And there's elements that are true. But I would say a lot of the timeline was was messier than I realized. <laughs> and it was yeah. kind of a shock to the system. And yet to know that I'm not actually loved or valued according to my own ability to craft a coherent narrative, but something deeper than that, which accounts for my, in fact, fallibility and uh, tireless attempts to um, assert my lovability. And uh, it was a, it, it was something that was shocking that then turned into something a little bit more comforting. So... Um, it makes me think so much, and I, I feel for clergy who are single, um, mm. and anyone who's frankly like in a helping profession that's single, or or a profession that's public, or I mean, I because I do think there's, for me, this innate comfort in knowing that no matter how like much I screw up, um, and and you know, or get turned into something that I feel like I'm not or am not out in the world like when I'm home I'm loved you know I've always been really thankful for that I mean it's funny Josh has had especially men uh ask him especially progressive men and you know progressive men make me anxious because they always are like hiding stuff I mean they're not always hiding stuff but you know what I mean they like they're like all on board with women's ordination but like then they have all these thoughts that they won't say right like because they're like oh no we affirm it but they haven't done the work they're editing themselves a lot they're editing themselves and they have asked my husband before like what's it like I mean she's a lot you know like what's it like for you and he's like um she's my wife like uh what are you talking about you know but it's like I don't know. I'm so grateful for, for him because he grounds me in like who I actually am and that I'm, I'm loved just for, for like existing. Mm. Right. Um, bathrobe, bathrobe, Sarah, not to bathrobe, Sarah. <laughs> I have been that our whole marriage. I will put a bathrobe over a full outfit. Um, if I'm cold enough. So yeah, I mean, not all progressive men are sketchy, but you guys know what I mean. Yes, I think actually I do know what you mean. Conservative men are sketchy, too. All men are sketchy. Does everyone feel better? Okay, keep going, Dave. Well, speaking of uh, uh, left-right divides, this is an article <laughs> that appeared in The Spectator, which is an English uh, newspaper, and it's by Theo Hobson, which kind of cut both ways in a way that I was not expecting. And uh, it's, the title is Racism is a Sin, and we are all sinners. And uh, the sort of tagline is that the current resurgence of debate about racism shows that we still need the concept of sin. 
And he talks about the ways in which the sort of uh, the especially the Black Lives Matter movement has, um, you know, has some religious elements to it. And if you've watched the videos of people kneeling and repenting, you, you know what we're talking about. Um, but mm. he writes this. He says, when secular movements ape religion, they create something narrower than the original by putting huge emphasis on one form of immorality. Modern movements create a dubious division between the pure and the impure. It implies that people who are free of racism, either because they are its victims or because they, are ardently, because they ardently side with its victims, are morally superior in a general way. This is where old-fashioned religion is crucially wiser. It says that we are all sinners, even if we zealously uphold this or that aspect of morality. Even if we do no discernible outward harm, we are prone to wrongdoing. We gravitate to it. Our hearts are not pure. In theory, at least, this realism dampens the zeal of religious moralists. It reminds them that they share the same sort of impulses that result in the immorality they condemn in others. And yet, to the zealot in our current time, this sounds evasive and complacent. Saying that on some level we are all guilty is just a way of saying that nothing much needs to change, isn't it? No, actually. A quick glance at history shows that most of the main abolitionists and anti-racism campaigners simultaneously believed that racism was a sin and that they themselves were sinners. Isn't that a contradiction? No, because they saw sin as wider than any particular moral evil. They saw slavery and racism as manifestations of human sin that must be opposed, but also saw that the root cause of the problem would, remain stu- would stubbornly remain, for human beings are greedy, proud, tribal, and hungry for any claim to superiority that is available. It is naive of the BLM zealot to say that we must be definitively anti-racist, and it leads to an ugly self-righteousness. We will be tempted to prove our goodness by accusing others of evil. And it is naive of the affronted conservative to deny that he or she carries any significant trace of racism, or to pretend that all the fault lies in the excess of the zealots. Only the language of sin allows us to be at all honest about racism. We ought to admit that it is a major moral evil, a sin. And we also ought to admit that it is a manifestation of the general human capacity for evil that none are free from. It's good. It's encouraging in a certain, in a strange kind of way. But that's the, I, I, that's the pushback often you get when you talk about, um, when you say, well, we're all sinners. Um, people say, well, that's, that's, um, that's what people have always said, or that is a, um, that's complacency. And you know, well, like, I'm yeah, sure it's, it's interesting. Thoughts and prayers aren't enough. Yeah, I'm sure it can same, be. Same it can be an, a, a use. It, we can mm-hmm. use it to to justify ourselves, to be complacent. And yet, in and of itself, I'm not sure. Though what, what he's trying to say is the statement actually isn't necessarily a complacent one. It's one that can name the evil without placing oneself um, above others, in a way that uh, sets up a, a kind of a, a renewed cycle of blame and recrimination. Um, and I, I've been struck throughout all of this because, you know, when we talk about racism and prejudice as um, inherited bias and systemic injustice and all these things that we sort of inherit, it does feel like the way that Christians talk about sin. It's not necessarily in your control. It's not something you can, by sheer effort of will, just cure yourself of. I remember, what, what, was, what was it, the other day, one of this a black athlete had said some very mean things about um, Jewish people. And there was a woman, uh, uh, another black uh, journalist writing about him for the Atlantic and saying, well, it turns out that just because you've been a victim 
of systemic bias and oppression does not mean that you're not capable of it yourself. And you're like, ding, ding, ding. You know, it's surprising that that needs to be said. And yet it also seemed almost shocking that she had to report that, Um, that there is something in the human DNA that tends to gravitate towards these, you know, using other people for our own uh, betterment. I don't know. I'm just talking here. What, What do you guys think? Well, it's, you know, when you talk about sin, you know, what we believe it, but what I think actually is also true is that the only solution to sin is, you know, repentance and forgiveness, right? Is, is coming clean, telling the truth, and being forgiven, um, which does not lead to, or maybe ever, to improvement, or certainly not immediate improvement, and yet there is something about forgiveness, something about love and grace and mercy, which which does begin to, you know, wiggle its way into someone's heart and transform them, right? Like well, it's, sort of, it the, it's sort of the it Tim Crider thing. It puts it in God's hands. Well, it does, and so that's what I was going to say, is that we, we, we live at a time when repentance feels, um, and I'm not sure this is always true, but it, it can feel impossible because... Um, the accusation is so huge, is so massive that you can't actually come clean, come forward and say, well, yeah, I guess I, I guess I am kind of a racist. I guess I do have these, uh, you know, these innate biases. I do, um, because, you know, to, to be called a racist, to admit you're a racist means, you know, to be at risk of being sort of canceled, outcast, like, be, so there's no room for repentance. And then, our culture, as, as the article says, seems to have given up on forgiveness, right? Because, well, forgiveness doesn't work, you know? Empathy doesn't work. Understanding doesn't work. We need we need concrete solutions. Um, we need things to be changed now. Uh, that the, the answer is is sort of power and not, um, not love. And I think you're right, Sarah, that there's also this faith element, right? That repentance and forgiveness means trusting something bigger than ourselves is at work. You know, which is why so many of those abolitionist leaders and anti-racist leaders were believed in something bigger than themselves. You know, whether they were Christians or Muslims or, or, or Jews or whatever, they believed that they were on the side of a benevolent force that actually was um, had more power than they did. So, um, yeah, I mean, is, is, our, is our culture capable, uh, is secular culture capable of adopting an idea like sin when it doesn't create room for honesty and it doesn't believe in the power of forgiveness and doesn't have faith in something larger than ourselves that actually is is um, working for our good, even when we seem to be so self-sabotaging. I want to say like we've been here before. Uh, we have been through a lot of the same conversation with people like Aziz Ansari. Yes. Um, meaning we've been in a place where because we don't have a concept of sin in our country culturally right now, because we are dependent on a kind of like um, uh, self-improvement religion um, all the way around, there's no concept for, for doing things wrong. And because there's no concept for doing things wrong, there's no real concept for forgiveness. So even when people do apologize, they don't apologize enough, Right. Um, I mean, that's, that's, that's real, right? I mean, it's, it's, I mean, RJ, I appreciate what you're saying about people sort of coming out and saying that they're racist and saying they're doing the work. I mean, that does get, I mean, that gets a positive response 
which in, in and of itself is a little dark for me because I just, I don't know what any of that means. I don't know what the positive response means. I don't know what doing the work really means. Like I, I it's all, it's all sort of like people motivated and there's no, there's nothing higher than us, bigger than us coming in from the outside. And so that always, I'm like, Oh, I mean, I hope that's working for you, but like, um, but I hope the Holy ghost is at work in you, you know, like that's what I'm hoping for in this. Um, I mean, I just, I think we need to make sin great again. You know, <laughs> I do. I think we should all be like, <laughs> I just think sin should like get back in the pulpit, you know, like get it back in. Um, because we're not, it's not just like America's not talking about sin. Like the church doesn't talk about sin, you know, generally. And so no one really has the capacity or language for that. It's like, even coming into college ministry, um, you know, that's a hard, that's a really hard concept for young people, like to, to talk about sin, because like, for them, that's like this old antiquated word their grandmother used. And yet, then there's no context for redemption, right? And so how do we kind of, um, as Christians, like, how do we handle that? I mean, I think, I don't know, I just... I, I love this article because I do think it um, it's a good reminder for us as Christians that the you know the anti-slavery anti-racism um, movement has been from the very beginning driven by the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and that a massive part of that movement in its in its original form was to admit that we are sinful um, and that God can change us. Mm-hmm. Um, but that we probably can't. And so I think that's a, that's a major, um, that's a major thing for us to remind ourselves of right now. Yeah. I think, yeah, I just concur. I think it's, uh, I would love for us to recover some sense because Simeon says, why did I concur? No, Simeon, my little brother, Simeon, when he gave that talk about hiding in plain sight, he said that when most, when most people today hear a Christian talk about original sin, or um, or just sin in general, what they hear is it's okay to uh, judge people for things that they can't control or think their their shortcomings, and Ooh. that's that's what that could be. I mean, there's the what we're got the chill bumps. That's what people hear, so they're against sin for because it sounds sinful, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, self righteous, and in yeah. fact, what we're talking about here is in, in is a leveling of the the playing field and admission of uh, core vulnerability and thoroughgoing uh, weakness that binds us one to another and allows us to to work for justice and work for uh, without becoming um, basically. Pharisaical is the is is the monstrous. word for it, and monster, monstrous, because that's what that's what you. He's sort of pointing out that it's it is ironic that conserv- conservatives should be able to embrace this understanding that we're all racist because they believe that technically that we're all sinners, and then but then progressives uh, need to embrace the fact that this is not the only that there self righteousness is a sin too, that there not there's not just individual sins but there's something called sin which is like a, a, a condition, and um. Which which next level means you're a sin. Next uh, level means you're a sin. Exactly. Like, and so it doesn't fit in either 
you know, ideological category right now. I think it, in fact, yeah. transcends them in a very powerful way. And this is part of what we mean when we talk about low anthropology, that if you're not, if you don't mm. expect people mm-hmm. to be anything other than what they are, well, then you can love them and that you can also not be totally undone when they don't fail to, when, when the students all have coronavirus on day seven. You know, yeah. you can say, well, how can I then love this person rather than just come at them with nothing but blame and finger wagging and punitive measures, which is really going to yeah. make them want to never talk to you again and ever about anything. So, RJ. But that approach, the thing that's so hard is that everyone believes in that approach because it does seem to work. That anger, accusation, uh, victimization, you know, all it, it, it seems to work. You know, in in the wider culture, when you look at, um, you know, people who get elected and the voices that are the loudest and the people that get the most press and even um, my wife and I watched Boys State last night. Have you guys watched that? No, No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard a great review. It was really good. And it all takes place in Texas. It it sort of made me, um, I don't know, maybe love Texas more. Uh, But there's, you know, there's. It's, it's about an election that happens as part of this American Legion program. And the most compelling, most honest figure, the one you want to know more about, um, he ends up losing, you know? Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons he ends up losing is because his opponent employs anger and obfuscation and victimization and all these classic, and they're teenagers, they're teenagers, but they recognize what works. And I think there's been a loss of faith on both sides of the political spectrum in humility and empathy in truth telling in uh, because that's that's exhausting, you know, and it's not sexy and it's not it's 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 the subversion of power. And it, it means um, telling that I don't know, it, it's it's a sad it's a sad moment right now. And I even as I say that you, you hope that even though that's not what you're seeing on the news, it is happening in interpersonal relationships, that conversations are being happening and that there are glimpses of hope which which poke through. Um, you know, like, uh, is it Dennis Davis? Is that his name? Who spoke at the... No, De- Daryl Davis. What was the name of the guy? Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis. That that's where the real work is happening. You know, that's where the real tr- transformation is happening, even though that's not what you're going to see on the nightly news. Um, but yeah, anger seems to work. Well, An accusation. it works to shut people up. I think, I don't think it works to change anyone's heart. And that's what, um, that's what one of the reasons he's, he's saying one of the, that's behind the anti-racism movement is that the laws keeping people's actions in check aren't enough. We want their hearts to be changed too. And that's, I think a very worthy, you know, desire. And yet what we also know is that, um, yelling at people just doesn't, um, change their hearts it, it may it may get them to stop doing some things like shooting you know you know fathers in the street but it it at the same time it um it doesn't always have the the effect of changing someone's attitude and softening their um their stubborn uh self-justifying uh idolatrous sinful heart but that doesn't mean that that can't happen and it does happen i mean we read that incredible story about the john lewis uh, and his um and that uh, kkk guy that was very hopeful to me <laughs> the one person who ever apologized well remember the jesus you know heals the 10 lepers and only one comes back right i mean i know I let's know. let's end with this uh on on kind of to take this a little further with some practical steps which we don't really do, is uh, Todd Brewer posted this week on Mockingbird a 12 steps for the recovering Pharisee. 
it's taken from a book with the same name. I've never even heard this book, but this, these steps are golden. You guys ready? Step, step yeah. one. We admit that our single most unmitigated pleasure is to judge other people. <laughs> step two. We have come to believe that our means of obtaining greatness is to make everyone lower than ourselves in our own mind. 100%. <laughs> Step three, we realize that we detest mercy being given to those who, unlike us, haven't worked for it and don't deserve it. Yeah. Mm. Step four, we have decided that we don't want to get what we deserve after all, and we don't want anyone else to either. Remember, this is mm. a progression. Step five, we will cease all attempts to apply teaching and rebuke to anyone but ourselves. Mm. <laughs> Step six, we are ready to have God remove all these defects of attitude and character. Now, that's very, that's, that, that mm -hmm. hues exactly to the 12 steps of AA. Step seven, we embrace the belief that we are, and always will be, experts at sinning. Step eight, we are looking closely at the lives of famous men and women of the Bible who turned out to be ordinary sinners like us. Yes. Mm. Step nine, we are seeking through prayer and meditation to make a conscious effort to consider others better than ourselves. Mm. Step 10, we embrace the state of astonishment as a permanent and glorious reality. Ugh. Step 11, we choose to rid ourselves of any attitude that is not bathed in gratitude. Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we will try to carry this message to others who think that Christians are better than everyone else. It's so good. That was a, a nice, pithy way of talking about it. I mean, it's almost, he's, it's really a program for not just recovering Pharisees, but recovering human beings. Yeah. And um, all of us in this moment who are so tempted to be self-righteous about, even to be self-righteous about self-righteous people, you know? Mm. Um, I find that, I find that especially that one um, about to, uh, to we will cease all attempts to apply teaching and rebuke to anyone but ourselves. Mm. That's, uh, I mean, uh, at least when it comes to a lot of the big ones, um, it's very difficult to listen to certain people talk about it, as we've seen like with the Jerry Falwell thing this past week. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> this, is not, this is not theoretical, you know? Right. It's, it's, it, this is the, the heart of the faith is the bathed in gratitude and moving outward from that humility because uh, gratitude really only occurs to the person who's been humbled or at least received something. That I've had, I mean, I know you don't want to talk about the Jerry Falwell thing, but, I don't care. um, I, well, I just, I mean, we don't need to spend too much time on it, but I have to say, I've had such a weird reaction to that. And I guess it's because I work with college students. I think if I didn't work with college students and I'd, I'd haven't come to know and to love them this past year, maybe I would be more callous. I think I probably would have been like, Hey, hey you know what I mean? <laughs> like those conservatives. Um, and I just hear these students talk about how heartbroken they are about the state of their university and the leadership. And I just feel, I feel so much compassion for them. I don't know. It's just like, so it's just so, I mean, I imagine like being a freshman at that school right now and like how, yeah, you know, I mean, there's so, and I can be critical of it very easily, but there's, there's so much like beautiful sort of moral, um, um, earnestness. Right. And it's just been crushed hope. and yeah, yeah. And hope like that would be more positive hope and it's just been crushed. Um, so anyway, I don't know. I just, that, that, that 
I, it's, it's, I, I mean, it's, it's so funny when you read this stuff and I love this 12 steps, uh, for the Pharisee stuff. It's always easy for me to think about who people are who are Pharisee, and it's definitely not me, you know, because I don't like have. I know um, who really needs to read this list. Right, exactly. Like those people are the Pharisees, and um, and then something like the the thing happens that happened at Liberty University, and because God has moved my heart so much to love college students, I'm just like, oh my gosh, like I just feel for them so deeply, you know, um, in a way that I didn't expect. So anyway, I don't know. I will say college is a great time to learn about the reality of sin in your oh. own life. You know, um, I think those babies are getting a one Oh one up at Liberty university. This well, year. But, not, but that's not even their personal sin. That's someone else's sin. Yeah, I think yeah, David yeah. was your dad who said, you know, that people go to college to make mistakes. That's the reason mm. you go to college is to make mm-hmm. mistakes, you know, and to mm-hmm. learn to be sort of set free to learn the truth about yourself. And I think especially yeah. if you're a Christian, I mean, speaking of a personal experience, you know, I think when I entered college uh, I, I thought I kind of had my act together and then I you had a the beret realized that nothing could be further from the truth um and a lot of that was my you know uh, uh having the freedom to make some mistakes so yeah. um yeah well that's one of the things that we've you know the college students have been hated on at, uh, without any mercy or hesitation for uh, <laughs> forever for, forever but especially these last yeah. 10 years with you know the activism and the um the the entitlement and the just the, the millennialism snowflakes all the, microaggressions all that stuff it's, it's very easy to to roll your eyes but you know you, you want to say well weren't you 19 once and making mm. you need to have this is this used to be, you weren't on a national stage because of by virtue of social media, but this is the time when you put your foot in it, you know, and you, you did some things that people can then bring up at your like wedding to say, oh, let me tell yeah. you what he did in college. And today yeah. you just, we were talking about RJ you, earlier about the, 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 the law out there, the free floating accusation of you must, you know, respond correctly. You must wash your hands correctly. You must, is one false move. Perfectly. Per- Not correctly, perfectly, but perfectly. perfectly. As a church, yeah. you must be absolutely attentive to the needs of the those who cannot come on Sunday and absolutely yeah. attentive to those who want to, who insist that you come. It's this, it's, it, it's there in college too. And as we know, mm-hmm. as that one of that commenters said, the, 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 it's going to just drive these things behind closed doors. And, um, and, uh, but, more deeply, I think you see it reflected in that um, statistic that we mentioned last week of that the CDC said of the suicidal ideation among 25 or I think 18 to 25 year olds is something like a quarter have seriously oh. considered killing themselves. And that's that's that happens when life is overwhelming. It happens with you know physiological imbalances, but it really happens when you have no hope of um, right. of things getting better. Or if knowing what you're like or what you want to do or who you really are, you have no hope that those things could ever be forgiven or accepted um, because you've so um, you've, you've so um, been bathed in the mercilessness that seems to be taking all of us captive. So. I guess these these steps. Or when you when you hope yeah. when you put your hope in the wrong things, when you put your hope in 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 people, institutions, they're going to disappoint you. Yeah. You know, which is gonna that's that's part of the learning process too. Learning where, what um what can bear the weight of your hope, you Ooh. know. And at the at the end of the day, you know, we only think there's one person who ever lived who can bear that. Yeah. <clears throat> one person who absorbed took on the hurricane <laughs> of human sin. Yeah. Um, that's right. 
So, well, I, that's a probably a good good place to leave it. I, I hope that we can uh, get into a slightly more regular schedule now that life has begun, but who knows? We're going to try. Uh, this is There's so many variables right now in terms of our lives, but um, we're so glad that you're listening, and uh, we cannot wait to um, talk again in a couple weeks. Thank you both. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. <laughs>